0: How exactly is it that a person who is not gay comes to believe, really believe, that they are gay for two years? Well, one of the contributing editors to this very radio program, Nancy Updike, had that experience herself. And she says she did not just turn herself into any kind of gay person. No, no, no. In her case, it was total, complete, full-hearted, unambiguous commitment.
1: Completely, completely and utterly. I worked at a gay newspaper. I only... Hung out with gay people in my spare time, I read about gay history. I dressed like a dyke, you know my hair was i mean if you know you know me now um, mm-hmm. as kind of a Femi person,
0: <laughs> yeah, kind of a very Femi person,
1: yeah, I cut my hair short and I didn't wear any makeup and I sort of dressed to hide my body and I had male friends that I called Mary and uh
0: and and so was there any, any kind of limit uh to, to, to your gayness?
1: Um yeah. The limit was that I really kind of couldn't bring myself to actually sleep with women.
0: So that seems like that would be kind of a problem.
1: It was it was I mean, at the time it was sort of like, well, I'm in this difficult transition and, you know, and I'm sure I'm just a, I'm sure I'm just about to do that. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah, I'll get to that. Um, Right. You know, it was like a loose end. I hadn't tied up yet. And it was like, oh, it was like, it's like that, you know, that, that squeaky door to the shed. You keep meaning to fix it. And every weekend it's like, oh, I guess I forgot to fix the squeaky door. And, um, I mean, I just didn't want to. I just didn't want to.
0: So, how does somebody who feels that way come to think that they're gay in the first place? When Nancy had just gotten out of college, she moved to a new city. Her parents were going through a bitter divorce. All her college relationships with boys had been disasters—or that's how it felt at the time, anyway.
1: So I was really unhappy, and I felt um, that this must be the explanation. I can't—I can't make these relationships work. They seem so awful you know part of what was awful was that I like I never trusted them like I you know all my close friends are women and you know and I love my women friends and it just seemed like sort of a short leap to like well maybe maybe I'm in love with with you know like maybe maybe that's what's going on like maybe that's maybe that's the problem right right
0: you had heard stories about people like you where their relationships hadn't worked out and they were unhappy all the time and it turns out they were gay, that was the problem,
1: yeah, yeah, and like once you know it, it's it's like a, a you know a snowball rolling downhill like once you once you get the ball started, you start to accumulate evidence in your mind that that's in fact the case. It's like remember that little friend you know you had, in in fourth grade, well, maybe you loved her, you know you guys were so close, hmm. and you know maybe you know the fact that you 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 know you like to wear pants well that's part of it you know you're a little like you were a little butch like you like to wear pants in high school when the other girls like to wear skirts just like you know you really start to or at least I did really start to sort of put everything together to make that the story um because I really I really really wanted to believe this story
0: Do you remember the first step you took?
1: Oh, well, the very first step was probably breaking up with my boyfriend. Right. <laughs> um, but the step after that, I joined. Um, <laughs> I joined a, a lesbian feminist reading group, and it was just like history and herstory and humanity and womanity. And I mean, I knew at the time, like, <laughs> this is not helping me.
0: So for two years, this is how it went. Nancy was a reporter for the Philadelphia Gay News. She thought of herself as gay. Gay men and women would talk about how they grew up, feeling like they were so different from their families, biding their time until they could leave home and be themselves. And Nancy felt like that was her story too. It had been her story, except for the gay part. Nancy had never wanted to marry or have kids, and she loved that now she was surrounded by people who didn't want to marry or have kids. After a while, she did start to go out with a woman, but it was awkward and it was terrible and reality started to set in little things would happen that would make her question what she was doing one day one of her coworkers a gay man was heading out of the office for lunch
1: and he came up behind me and he started he started rubbing my back you know giving me a, a shoulder rub and um it was i mean it was kind of like like the like the plug in the socket like, it was just electric. It was the first time I had been touched on my skin by a man in a couple of years. And I I just, in my head, I was just like, Nancy, you've, you've got to give this up.
0: Within a week, she started going around to people she knew. She'd already come out as a homosexual to family and to friends, which is a tough thing for anybody to do. And now, incredibly, she had to come out again as straight, which was even harder because she was so embarrassed. And it was hard not being part of a group anymore.
1: I felt, I felt so sad to, to leave that. I felt alone, I felt like, you know, I'm really on my own.
0: Welcome to WBEZ Chicago, it's Cis American Life, distributed by Public Radio International, I'm Ira Glass. Today in our program, my experimental phase, Stories of people who are very unhappy, who decide to become somebody different and love being somebody different, and then have to choose whether to go back being the person they once were. Act one of our program, funny, you don't look Jewish. In that act, a man who's living essentially like a very devout 19th century Polish villager jumps forward two centuries, starts watching TV, and changes very, very fast. Act two, Miami Vice's In that act, a middle school student switches schools and tries out an entirely new personality. Stay with us. Act that's funny you don't look Jewish. This story takes place in Williamsburg, a neighborhood in Brooklyn, where different worlds collide, or at least warily orbit around each other. There's Hipster Williamsburg, which is filled with galleries and studios and restaurants and night spots and lots of aspiring artists and musicians. And then there's Hasidic Williamsburg, which is pretty much stuck in the 19th century. You've probably at least um, seen pictures of the Hasids at one point or another. These are the religious Jews who shun just about everything modern. The women all wear long dresses, most of them wear wigs. All the men wear identical black suits, white shirts, black hats. And um. They have that hair thing, you you may have noticed, something called payas, the long curls that fall near their sideburns, down their face, in front of their ears. These two Williamsburgs don't interact much. They hardly even acknowledge each other, except on very rare occasions. David Siegel is a staff writer and the former rock critic of the Washington Post, and he tells the story of one of those occasions.
2: It's hard to imagine this about a group of people living one subway stop from Manhattan, but the Hasids of Williamsburg know next to nothing about the world outside of their enclave. And that's the way they want it. The Bible, they say, tells them to keep separate from everyone else, to build boundaries that are as thick as possible. Their outfits are meant to set them apart. And then there's the language barrier. Though nearly all of these people are born and raised here in the U.S., Yiddish is the only language most of them truly know. None of us know English because we don't talk English at home. We we study English class one hour a day. This is Haim. He didn't want us to mention his last name. For good reasons, as you'll find out
3: later. Boys and girls are completely divided. There's no movies. Uh, we don't know anything about the world. We don't know any celebrities. Had you heard of MTV? <sighs> Not even close, we didn't even know radio, We know, we didn't even, we never heard radio. Not even, uh, yeah, you know what I mean?
2: So if someone had mentioned the Rolling Stones or U2 or other rock bands, you would not have recognized those names?
3: Rolling Stones, I would think it's something, something that injured somebody. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't know what Rolling Stones means.
2: At the time the story begins, one night years ago, Haim is 20 and single, which in the Hasidic community is a problem. The problem, though, has a highly ritualized solution. Through matchmakers, a groom-to-be is sent on what sounds more like a job interview than a date. The guy meets the father of the potential bride, and he peppers the young man with questions. If the father likes the answers, the guy meets the daughter, and after a brief meeting or two, the pair decide whether to marry. Well, Haim had been on a few of these outings, And he kept flunking the father interview. On the night in question, his would-have-been father-in-law asked Haim if he would stay in school, in yeshiva, and study full-time. It'd be prestigious having a scholar in the family. But Haim had told him the truth, that yeshiva didn't interest him much. When he was rejected, not for the first time, his family thought he'd screwed up again.
3: When I got home, everybody was telling me, why didn't you tell them at least that you would, and then, you know, you don't have to do, but, you know... Everybody was on me, and, you know, I I was not very happy because I was not, uh, you know, most of us go at the age of 18, 18, 19, 20, you know, 21. Most of my friends were were married already. You know, some of them had kids. And they was, I felt like they were, the blame was on me why I'm not
2: married or something like that. Now, to understand what happens next, you have to know that haim was the Hasidic version of a rebellious teen. He snuck away to watch an American movie or two and had recently become a baseball fan and on a few occasions when he felt especially hassled by his family he'd headed to a bar for a beer which is what he did this evening a local bar called the Right Bank where a man named Billy Campion happened to be performing Billy was jumping up and down on the bar like a gorilla in a cage bellowing at the top of his lungs and playing a guitar I watched and was amazed. it was just loose, it was just you know flying, everything was rocking
3: it was he was performing wild, he was you know jumping on chairs and throwing all kind of stuff and they, you know it was cool to see how somebody was so free you know and that 's exactly what I wanted. I was so tight at that time i was you know I wanted to get loose a little bit so
4: during the break, um, I see this very tall. Hasidakai sitting at the bar, smoking a cigarette, drinking a beer, and watching the baseball game.
2: This is Billy Campion, known to the world and indie music fans as Vic Thrill. On the night that he was pogoing on the bar, Billy lived a few blocks and several centuries away from Haim in the other Williamsburg. Billy wears space glasses and secondhand tuxedos, and his hair is spot dyed a different color every couple weeks. But he's one of these guys who greets everyone on his block by name, from other seamsters to cashiers who work in the bodegas. So it bugged him for years that there was this huge population in his neighborhood, the Hasids, whom he knew nothing about and never spoke to. And a few weeks prior to the show at the right Bank, he decided to do something about it.
4: I actually asked God if he would introduce me to a Hasidic Jew that wouldn't mind showing me about the culture. I wanted to relate, you know what I mean, to people who seem so different. You actually prayed to God about this? Yeah, I was standing in my place looking out my window at Faces South towards the Hasidic community. And, uh, and I thought to myself, well, you know, I need to bounce it off a satellite, you know what I mean, to get it over the top of the neighborhood. I, I figured I had to come in from above to get in there.
2: That night at the bar, though, Billy wasn't really thinking about any of that. He just spotted Haim and introduced himself.
4: So I started talking to him, and I didn't realize this was the godsend yet, you know? And uh, I was like, how's it going? He's like, good, and less music. And I was like, thanks a lot, man. I was like, you you really liked it? You know, I'm surprised, you know?
3: I used to also make music songs, you know, presidential songs. And uh, so when I saw Billy that night, I felt like okay, now I have a connection, I can become, there was never a Husset that ever became a a rocker. I
4: was like, um, I have a recording studio up the street, I would love to have you by sometime, you know, if you really want to get these recordings down, you know what I mean, in in a quality way. And uh, maybe I'll take you up on it, you know, so I gave him my phone number and and I forgot about it.
3: My parents didn't really uh, show, I didn't feel appreciation From my uh, songs, my father never gives in a compliment. He doesn't even know how to take one. Not he's a very nice guy, my father, but he just he doesn't know how to give a compliment. Mm -hmm. So uh, when I had somebody that I was able to talk to, you know, I was totally you know for it for him. And the first chance that I had to come to the studio, I snuck in here and I was here.
4: I got a phone call one day. He said, "Yeah, hello." And I was like, "Hi." He's like. This is Chaim, Uh, we met down at the bar the other night. He's like, I wanted to come check out your studio. So I was like, I would love that, you know what I mean? And uh, he came here, and next thing you know, he didn't leave for a year and a half.
2: The here that Billy's talking about is a converted industrial garage, which served as the apartment, recording studio, prop warehouse, and party headquarters for Billy and a group of his friends. They called it the Vic Thrill Salon. It's here that Vic Thrill's musical debut, CE5, was recorded. And if I could editorialize for a moment, it's really superb. One of the best albums of 2003. Sci-fi pop with lots of hooks, deadpan humor. Like Devo, but a little more raw. The Victor Salon is a sort of thrift store version of Andy Warhol's factory. At any given moment, musicians with names like Trans Pop Loops or Saturn Missile could be jamming on the couch. People with video cameras came and went. A rock and roll manager named Mary Mayhem, who dealt cocaine from her purse, was a regular. Into this chaos walked Haim, wearing a buttoned-up black suit and a rabbinical beard. If he'd been searching for the polar opposite of his Hasidic life, he couldn't have done better. But... What intrigued him the most was something found in just about any den in the U.S. It was the television.
4: He watched everything. Everything from, like, cheesy Aaron Spelling shows to, like, like five straight hours of MTV.
3: I would be able to sit there about five hours or more. I would sit here. I was a heavy smoker. I was there for hours just watching, soaking in television.
2: His favorite channel, of all the channels he watched, was MTV, Because of the years he'd spent writing songs in his spare time. His stuff was mostly biblical prayers set to melodies he'd made up. Something like this his rendering in Hebrew of the 23rd
3: Psalm.
2: MTV caused Haim to give up the Old Testament as a muse and start writing pop in English. But the guy was the cultural equivalent of an unfrozen caveman. Everything was new. Nothing had context. You take someone like that and expose him to daily and lethal doses of music television. Something strange is bound to happen.
4: He he would not differentiate between, you know, Britney Spears, you know, and Eminem. He just thought music, like that's good, that's not good, that's I like that, I don't like that, you know. He didn't yet know anything about like, you know, genres or categories, you know, like or what kind of demographic is into that and he just didn't care. So he was writing music that went from like very, you know, um very sensitive love songs, you know, about like the show Pacific Blue. Midnight Blue, you're so sweet when you come true. Pacific
3: Blue. I had this one song, it goes like this. When I wrap my arms around you, I feel your heartbeat. It's a time bomb to explode. Love is the ammunition. Sparkle, sparkle, beautiful eyes. Twinkle, twinkle, beautiful lips. Warm me, warm me, beautiful body. Oh, you're such a hearty. The meal's being served, but you know what's being observed. A little touching under the table. Whoa, who needs cable?
4: And uh, a lot of the stuff doesn't make sense, like in Welcome to the Millennium. It heals our wounds, da-da-da, a happiness I'd never pretend. Well,
3: like, stuff wouldn't make sense. But the problem was that my lyrics, but usually when I did write, because my vocabulary was so small and my English was so poor, it was funny.
4: Like any kid who discovers music for the first time, this guy was blossoming at such an incredible rate of creativity. The most prolific being you've ever seen in your life, you know, and he's saying to me he's like you know i'm on my way to yeshiva, you know, and i 'm singing these melodies you know on the sidewalk, and you know uh you know I have these melodies, you know what i mean and I, and I have these good you know uh you know verbal ideas you know that i can uh but i go into uh I go into yeshiva and I start the class and uh and I forget them, and uh, I just need a way to remember these things, you know, so I said, well, I mean it would be good if you had like a portable cassette player or something like that, but um, he wasn 't going to have one anytime soon, and his allowance was small and so I was like, "What you know what I do in a jam? I call my answering machine and uh and man, he heard that man, and he just that was the solution right there, and he was like oh that 's a good idea Well I find out he doesn 't have an answering machine, but of course I do
5: message one." It got to the point
4: where I couldn't even check my own messages anymore because he was filling my answering machine with new song ideas from payphones all over the city. You know what I mean? Here's trucks whizzing by in the background. You know what I mean? This guy's like, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Uh, that's uh, that's the keyboard line for the second verse of, uh, of uh, midnight blue you know and then like you know he hangs up the phone. Six.
5: Six. She comes from nowhere Her naked, dear. But when you see her dance, if I know in advance,
4: I had become um, aggravated by him because he was coming around every day for no less than six hours a day and watching TV. I said, if I didn't have a TV, would you be coming over here like, is it my friendship that you're totally looking for or are you looking to like watch some tube here, you know? And he goes, all right, all right, I got to admit it, you know what I mean? The TV is, it's, I'm addicted. I'm definitely addicted to the television and I need to do something about it. <laughs> and like, uh, he had been pestering me to write music with him. And I kept putting him off and putting him off. This guy's a pain in the ass, whatever. And then, uh, And then it dawned on me, that's when I said, oh my, I was like, this is, this is the moment. Yes, I'll definitely write some music with you. And I wanted to make it as easy as I could on myself. I just grabbed my guitar, I said, sing some of those lines to me there. Welcome to the Millennium was the first song that we ever wrote together. And I said, sing, sing, uh, sing the first verse to me, you know. So he's like, okay, here's the first verse, the first verse. Here comes the night, there is no light. It's so dark it looks like the end, a cold wind blows, a scary noise, a situation I'd never pretend. So I was like, okay, that's the first verse, so it's like, let's hear her. so what's that, is that, that's it, here comes the night, there is no light, it looks like the sun came down to earth. So I just like put chords like directly to the vocal line and this is like how I proceeded from that point on A cold wind blows a scary noise a situation I'd never pretend well So that's what was happening, you know what I mean? And then finally I had to start booking
5: shows. The
4: The first gig that that I got him, the first gig, was at this place, um, um, Joe's Pub, which is like a high-profile joint. It's like what I would consider to be like a double velvet rope affair. I mean, you got to be somebody to get into the place, you know? I mean, there's like James Eha, the guitarist from Smashing Pumpkins, you know, standing online with like, you know, some kind of supermodel. You know, it's like these are the kind of people that are standing online there, you know what I mean, to get in.
2: On the night of the performance, Vic and the band headed on stage in their regular outlandish gear. Haim is dressed in traditional Hasid clothes black pants, white shirt, yarmulke. He was introduced as the craziest Jew since Goldberg, the professional wrestling star.
4: I felt like, you know, that scene in like Young Frankenstein, you know, like, ladies and gentlemen, the monster, you know, like, you know, and then this guy comes out on stage, you know, like, that's what it was like, like, he came out on stage, people were just like, people were just like, what the hell is this? His performance was like a mixture between like, you know, like Eminem or, you know what I mean, like Snoop Dogg, you know, like pointing in people's faces and like just... The most demonstrative, like, you know what I mean, hand gestures you've ever seen in your life. And then throwing kicks up in the air like a Hasidic wedding, you know, he's like mixing like this, like Jewish dancing with what he's seen on MTV, you know, and it was so over the top and people were like, at first people were like, you know, like a dog that just been shown a card trick, you know what I mean, like people were baffled. And and then all of a sudden I was like, ladies and gentlemen, uh, this is a real Hasidic man and Then the place just, out of their seats, hit the dance floor and went ballistic. I mean, just, they loved it. They flipped, you know? And he became like an instant star, you know? He was like this underground star, you know?
0: Coming up, putting the Sabbath back into Black Sabbath, the life of an underground Hasidic glam rock star. That's in a minute. From Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International, when our program continues. (laughs) American Life from Ira Glass. Each week on our program, of course, we choose some theme, bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's program, my experimental phase, stories of people who take on a new identity as a lark, and then start to face some serious choices. David Siegel's story about Chaim continues, a warning that they mention the existence of sex in a general way In what's about to follow. Uh, the story at this point, by day, Chaim was a typical young Hasid living with his parents. By night, he was on the rock scene, the underground rock scene. Here's David.
2: A typical day went like this. He'd get up in the morning, tell his mom and dad he was going to yeshiva, cut class, and head to Billy's. He'd watch TV, eat, talk, hang out, watch more TV, and go home for dinner. Then, at nights when he was performing, he'd head out again, this time with his concert outfit tucked into a bag.
4: He was really getting into the costumery of what we were doing. So... The only costume he had was Purim clothes, which is, you know, the Jewish Halloween, basically, you know, um, they get all dressed up, you know, and, and so he had all his Purim clothes. So that became his gig outfits, you know, like this, this like gold sequin cape with a like, gold like tinsel, you know, and like this big like, like, it was, it was almost like Hebrew Flava flave style necklace. It was like Superman style, you know. He would show up Hasidic with a little bag or something like that. And then he would go into the bathroom and just transform, you know. He said to me, you know, I need a name. I need, you know, you guys got a name. You know, you have Vic Thrill, you know what I mean. You got Saturn Missile, you know what I mean. Everybody needs a name, you know. So I was thinking about, uh, you know, maybe I should have one. I said, that's cool. Have you thought of anything? Well, I've thought of a couple, you know. I don't know if I... I got this one, you know, I got this one that sounds kind of cool, you know. I was like, what's that? He says, uh, Curly
3: Oxide. Curly Oxide, it it came into me, you know, I have bass, curls, curly. And then I wanted something, like, edgy, you know. From what I've seen, the culture of of music has to be like some sort of, you know, like, you know, more little edgy. Oxide came into me, I don't know why. So curly oxide. And I go,
4: That's great. Like I played down my reaction. I was like, that's great, man. That's great. Why is it great? He was like already suspicious. How see it's a suspicious man? They you know they look right through you, he goes, Why is that why is that great? And I, he said, What does it mean? I said, Well, curly, you know yeah, I know what curly means, you know, I got the pace, you know, I got the, what about oxide? Oxide, you know oxide is rust, you know what I mean? It's like uh, on metal, if you leave it out in the rain, it turns orange. I don't know if I like that. <clears throat> oxide is oxidation. It's about uh, something undergoing change, uh, transformation from one thing into another thing. I like that. I like I like the sound of that because I, you know, I'm uh, I'm I undergoing a, a, a transformation. I I'm undergoing a transformation into curly oxide. Ladies and gentlemen, curly oxide. <laughs>
2: So then you began performing pretty regularly with him? I mean, did he get a reputation? Did people oh, find yeah. out about him?
5: Oh, yeah,
4: yeah. He would, he would perform then regularly down at the right bank, and then we would have him come up and play for the bigger Vic Thrill shows. You know, Mercury Lounge, Bowery Ballroom, the West Beth Theater when that was still around. You know, and uh, people loved it. Yeah. Is tomorrow, yeah.
2: This is Curly Oxide, a typical night at the right bank in a video recorded for the Vic Thrill Salon. The right bank is a cramped little club without a stage. The crowd gawks and dances, and Curly holds the microphone with both hands, like someone's going to try to steal it from him. A future, On nights like this, women occasionally threw their underwear at him. He had a song in the club jukebox. He'd become a local phenomenon. He stood out at the same time, Began to fit in.
4: I, I witnessed an accelerated adolescence with this guy. In the course of a year and a half, I, went, I watched a guy go from 13 to 20 years old, you know?
3: Deep inside, a lot of people have, uh, I would call, uh, the beast of within. You know, when you see sometimes people get drunk and they feel like there's a moment that now they can be what they really want to be and nobody will accuse them of being that image. They would just do it. They would just be like crazy and throwing stuff. And uh, I mean, I would be insane. I would be like doing certain sounds and stuff and dancing like... I felt like uh, doing whatever I intend on doing and nobody can stop me. And being appreciated for it. <laughs> was it satisfying? Oh, absolutely. Hell yeah.
4: He inspired everybody. He lit a fire under everybody's ass in this place. He was so unafraid. And I think that you do know, it like you envied that. You know? He hadn't been told yet. You know what I mean, that he was going too far in any way. And I think that a lot of people, like, over the course of their lives, if you started at 13 years old, you may have been burned by some extremes here and there, you know, and he hadn't been. And these are all little horses that we fail to get back on, you know, uh, when we've been hurt. And he hadn't experienced that yet. And it definitely caused me to get back on some horses, you know what I mean, and not be so embarrassed, you know, and self-conscious, you know what I mean, about the way I perform.
2: But the life of a Hasidic rocker has some built-in complications. Heim dreamed about singing Welcome to the Millennium for a crowd of millions in Times Square, a New Year's Eve of 2000, but he dropped that plan when he realized the date fell on the Sabbath, when work was out of the question. For a while, for more than a year in fact, he nurtured Curly Oxide. But he was a Hasid, too, and he knew he couldn't be both people for very long. He began dropping hints to his parents about his secret life, and he got sloppy about concealing the evidence of his alter ego. His mother found lyrics in English that he'd left lying around. His father found a fan letter in a pocket of his pants. Plus, he was coming home later and later, three, four, five in the morning. Sometimes his parents would be up waiting for him, distraught.
3: My parents were like, killing me, you you know... You, you you make me have a heart attack and, you know, I, it's not good for you and you're going to regret it and whatever, you know. It's, they they tried to talk because they knew that they, they couldn't go in a strict way because they knew that, you know, any strict thing they do, I'm out. And... Uh, I didn't, I wouldn't say anything. I would just, you know, dump myself into bed and it, it, it would bother me. And What am I doing? You know, it hurts them and, you know... I would would try to turn them up against their feelings and, you know, to uh, numb. I
4: started to actually get phone calls here. I had caller ID and I saw his last name on it. And he was here. And I was like, oh, wow, I guess it's just started because I've seen Hasid's go down to the right bank and pull Hasid out of there saying you shouldn't be in there and then argue with the people in there that were arguing on the behalf, not Hasidic people, arguing on the behalf of the guy who was in there. And they say, you stay out of this. You stay out of this. This is none of your business. You know? And I felt like, uh-oh, this is about to happen with me.
2: Haim's parents never confronted Vic, but they weren't about to lose their son without a fight. They began a massive hunt to find Haim a wife as quickly as possible. They called everyone they knew, took recommendations from relatives. They networked with matchmakers. But Haim was inching further and further away. He'd saved up some money. He was taking bartending classes. He had an exit strategy. Basically, a race was underway. His parents were trying to find him a wife before he actually leapt into the secular world for good. Oddly enough, the secular world seemed to be rooting for his parents.
4: At one point, he was going to cut the curls. He told me he wanted to move in with me and he wanted to cut the curls. And, you know, jokingly, but, you know, with serious undertones, I said, if you cut the curls, you're out of the band. You know, I was like, I'm telling you, man, if you cut the curls, we have no act. That's what I'm saying to you. Do you know what I'm saying? You know, as the managerial type, you know, as the music business type, you know, the, the talent manager, I was mainly worried that the act. Um, was going to lose its luster if he became like us and that it was going to turn into bad music you know and um, the innocence I think another big thing is that the innocence would be lost and the innocence is where he was creating from I just didn't want him to crossover entirely. You know? I didn't want to be responsible for that. Um, you know, I could have gotten him on Howard Stern. Stern would have eaten that up, you know? And part of me, like a selfish part of me would have liked to have seen that. You know? Stardom, you know what I mean? Like, of the, being a character. He, he was a prime candidate for that. Um, but I didn't want to, like, I, I didn't want to, uh... I've heard that if a Hasid decides to cut the curls and, and leave the sect, the family is, uh, I think they sit Shiva, actually. I think the parents sit Shiva, as if he's dead. Um, so I, I didn't want to be, you know what I mean, the arch enemy of his family, you know.
2: Haim, as it happens, had reservations of his own about abandoning the Hasidic world.
3: I was very torn. I was just torn. I mean I all along I knew that what I was doing was not in in line with my upbringing, with 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 the Hasidic way, with the Torah way of of uh, life. So I knew that I wasn't doing something right, but I liked it and I felt that I was accepted. So I had these two paths and I said I can't choose. I'm, I don't know. I, I, I love both.
4: As he said at one time, my parents are desperately trying to find me a wife. And I really want a record deal. But if they find me a wife first or if I get the record deal, it's God's will, and I'm going to do that.
2: A record deal or a wife. If Heim thought the choice was in the hands of the Lord, he'd underestimated his mother, who called him one night while Haim was in Manhattan, getting ready for a show. A certain young lady would be at a certain wedding that evening, she told him, and maybe Haim could swing by and take a look. At first he said no and begged off with a few excuses, but his mother then sounded so sad, he felt a wave of guilt and reconsidered. Haim changed back into his Hasidic clothes and went to the wedding, where he eventually got a quick glance at this young lady from a distance in a parking lot. Haim was not impressed.
3: I was like... For this, they, had to, they made me again come, you know, okay, another boss. So I went home, I said, for this, you, you know, I mean, next time before you send me somewhere, you just look, ask, you know, get information of what we're talking about. So I went back down to the basement, they got back dressed, and I went to perform that night, uh, you know, till 4 o'clock in the morning.
2: But the girl felt differently. It turned out that she liked him, and that softened him just a little, enough to get him to agree to a date, a Hasidic date in her living room surrounded by family
3: my parents were sitting in the kitchen and the, there was no door and i felt totally uncomfortable we <laughs> were we'll talking about for mm, i would say maybe 45 minutes this is the
2: first time you would spoken to
3: her right um there's nothing you know there's not too much to converse you know you go you went to the yeshiva and what do you want to the kids and you know where do you want your kids to go to the yeshiva and to wish yeshiva because there's like all kinds of yeshivas and stuff and uh you know uh you know it's just i wasn't you know crazy over it because i was in a totally different world at that time you know, obviously i was i was curly oxide and all of a sudden i'm Thrown back into this other, this other, you know, personality. i mean, you know, I was totally two different persons. The matchmaker calls, calls in, and, and talks to my mother and says, "They want to finish it." I mean, the girl wants me. That was it, you know. We're married. I have two beautiful children. Oh, wait a second.
2: Like, uh, <laughs> wait a second. That's about it. <laughs> Let's back up. It was that quick? The, yeah. You, you, yeah. yeah.
3: We spoke Saturday night, and we became engaged. There was an engagement party the next day.
2: They were indeed married three months later. This might sound incredibly fast, but in the Hasidic tradition, no one marries for love. That comes later, hopefully. And though Hyman spent far more energy dreaming about the billboard charts than about being a husband, he knew in the back of his mind that a day of surrender was probably inevitable, and that it meant returning fully to the fold. No more rock star. No more carousing. The end of the beast within. But you knew that you were killing Curly Oxide at that moment. You agreed to get married. Uh, I know that uh,
3: this, this character is going down, yeah. We knew that it was it's like a show, you know. We knew that the show was going to be up, and then you know there's going to be time to close it. Were you sad that
2: the show was going that show was going to be over?
3: Um, I can put myself back in the moment, and I didn't think. I was just because my whole life came tumbling, because it was like these two years, but like so. It was it was like so shaky and so. I, all of a sudden, okay, it came back, though, you know, like, oh, you are normal, you know, you are getting married like everybody else, and I was like, I couldn't think, I uh, I didn't even realize what was happening, you know. Were you relieved? Uh, to an extent.
2: Billy, for his part, was kind of relieved too, and now, having chaperoned Heim through his world, he wanted at last to get a glimpse at Heims which would be tricky
4: you know the toughest part of the whole thing was that he wasn't going to be able to invite me to the wedding
2: because non-hasidics are not allowed at the at the wedding
4: absolutely not but we found a uh, we found a solution to that we found a loophole to that soon enough which was uh he hired um he hired cass chris cassidy who is our videographer at the Victorville salon um to film his wedding with me as the assistant um, you know, and at the time I had a uh, I had a, a green mohawk, which uh, I had to stuff under a hat. You know, I mean a yarmulke would not have you know concealed this thing. So we went in there and we shot the wedding, and the wedding just was that was really like the the third stage of like the gift of you know on this divine gift of his friendship was to witness a Hasidic wedding. It was like nothing I had ever seen in my life. The fact that you know. We got to see them married under the tent. It just seemed like such an ancient ceremony, too, the ritual of it, you know, with her walking around him and the constant prayer that was going on, you know what I mean? I really felt like there was the love for these two, you know, how important it was that everybody gather around them and pray all together. And then going into the building um, to watch them run down the hallway. And he's smiling, and I'm like, this is my old buddy, man. He's smiling at me. And I didn't realize that, like, this was the turning point. They turned off into a room, and that's where they go to consummate the marriage. Um, a small room, I think with a bed in it, and everybody just eats out in the hall, you know, out in the dining hall, which has a partition down the middle of it, and the men are on one side and the women are on the other side. And uh, and then, so we had to leave the hall at that point when they had gone into the room, and uh, we were invited back in when they were being carried out on the chairs. And then they get placed down in their separate you know, rooms there, you know, and uh, and they have to dance with everybody in the room. He danced with hundreds of guys. I mean, it's incredible. The energy that you have to put out on your wedding night if you're Hasidic is just incredible. Now, his father had suspected something of me because uh, a few of the Hasidic guys at the wedding, had winked at me and, like, come up and elbowed me, and, hey, hey, like, they, they knew me, you know what I mean, from the from the uh, the legend of Curly Oxide. And, like, several of them had gone down to the right bank to try and, you know, because his song was in the jukebox, they heard about that, you know, and and uh, and so this guy was, like, a legend in his neighborhood, you know what I mean, and they were coming up to me, and I think the father saw some of this going on, and he would give me, like, what I call the skunk eye, you know, every once in a while, you know, like, he'd give me like, this hairy eyeball, you know. And uh, and I zoomed in on him, like, every time you do that. So I had, like, this up-close footage of, like, the hairy eyeball from his father. <laughs> it was incredible. And I never once, at the, at the very end of the whole thing, I walked up to him, because everybody was shaking his hands at that point, and Cash shook his hand. And I walk up and I shook his hand like a total stranger. And we had zero, you know, energy transfer between us in the old way. You know, we really blocked it off, and I just said, Congratulations man. She seems like a beautiful bride. And that was it. You know. And we had a big laugh boy afterwards though when he showed up here man. I mean we laughed for like a half an hour over this whole thing.
2: Years after that half hour laugh, Billy Campion is touring his Vic thrill, playing shows around New York and throughout Europe. If you ever catch his act, You'll witness a guy as antic as anyone you'll ever see on a stage. pager on vibrate, is how one observer put it. The unembarrassable style owes a little something to curly oxide. In the months after the wedding, every once in a while, Billy and Heim would get together, just to catch up. But almost immediately, Heim and his family moved an hour upstate. Now he doesn't see Billy much. And in part, he relocated to avoid the temptation of his old ways. Then again, he doesn't sound like a man on the verge of a backslide
3: i don't even i don't even want to think of missing it because i'm missing it meaning i'm i'm not there so why even go there to feel missing it you know it's, it's, you know you blank out you try you blank yourself out i mean i i know that i can't have what you know what i would like over there so there's no you know and i and i like my life now and uh, i would lose everything, you know, going back or, you know, so, I mean, there's there's, there's too too much to lose, and I know that I can't have it, so I wouldn't even uh, touch that.
2: Does your wife know that you had this other life as Curly Oxide? Yeah, she actually does.
3: I told her. I actually do regret telling her. Because let me tell you, a so secret. I, I don't know if you guys are married, but anybody that is married, do not tell your wives your past, especially your troubled past. I mean, the stuff that you did, you know, your mischief uh, past.
2: I asked Haim would he tell his son if the boy announced one day that he wanted to sing in a rock band. Heim almost frowned. I tell him to sing something traditional, he said, in songs that are in Yiddish. As for Curly Oxide, there's hardly a trace of his career anywhere. He never released a CD, and last year the right bank closed, and that unplugged the only jukebox in the world where you could hear his music.
0: David Siegel is a staff writer for the Washington Post. He also has a website. W. Jews Rock. Org
5: Follow your You will find no end. If you have trouble, believe it. You can always pretend we won't judge.
0: Back to Miami Vices. This next story was recorded at a live stage show in Los Angeles called Mortified in which everyday people stand up on stage and read from their own teenage diaries. One person who took the stage one night was Sasha Rothschild. A a quick warning for sensitive listeners that she mentions all kinds of fooling around with teenage boys in what follows.
6: Hi, everybody. My name is Sasha. And to give you a little background, um, I grew up in a very upper-class Jewish household in Miami Beach. And I went to elementary school. um, For elementary school, I went to private school and I hated it because the kids were really mean to me. So I really wanted to go to public school for junior high, and my parents let me, and this is what happened when I went to public school. And I'm 13 here. A lot happened today. I made out five times with Jose Polo. <laughs> he said, I kissed like a rich girl. <laughs> he had a longest tongue. I really like his best friend, Carlos. I think Carlos likes me. Jose and I are just good friends, but we fool around because we think each other is hot. <laughs> I am reading the diary of Anne Frank. It really means a lot to me. First of all, I'm Jewish. And that means a lot to me. Also, I recently got you and started writing in you. The Diary of Anne Frank has really inspired me. Anyway, Carlos and I finally made out. (laughs) Jessica is being a bitch. After I was with Carlos, I spent some time with Tyrone Treyon, and Tyrell. I love them. I like black boys much more than white boys. They're more fun. It gets worse. So much has happened. I went to a big party at Jira's house. The party was awesome. I got completely drunk and started talking to these older guys who had beer. They gave me a lot. The older guys liked me, and they wanted my phone number. I gave it to them. I'm worried though. I'm turning into a bad girl. My (laughs) grades are dropping, I'm drinking a lot, I'm lying, etc. I don't want to tell Diego and Shane I'm only 13, but I also don't want to get raped or anything. (laughs) I don't know what to do, I think I'm going to lose my virginity very soon. (laughs) The scary thing is, is that I'm having so much fun. So many guys like me, I'm so f***ing popular. My mind and body are 17, but I'm only 13. P.S. I have grown so much inside in the past few months. Hey, was up or down? I put the arrows up or down. Well, things are totally up with me. Helder and I are going out. I like him so much. He's so cool, nice, funny, caring, sensitive, and fine. <laughs> yes! He has such a nice body. In the movie, Helder and I made out a lot, and we went to second over the shirt. It wasn't a big deal. Later, dude. I wrote later, dude, literally. And went, okay. okay, a lot happened. First of all, Helder and I broke up yesterday. I dumped him. In parentheses. The day after we went out, I went to his house, and we were in bed naked together. Don't ask me how that happened. (laughs) I wouldn't sleep with him, and I think he got mad. Since then, it seemed all Helder wanted was to have sex with me. I broke up with him six days after we went out. I, literally, I, because I'm hanging out with, you know, Cubans, so I'm trying to understand how to speak Spanish. I, well, a lot of has happened I have been getting drunk and stoned every day also Diego and I broke up I didn't mind that he was a drug dealer but it just wasn't working out anyway Anna and I aren't friends anymore Cricket and I are very good friends and last but not least I'm going out with Antonio we have been together for nine days. I really like him. I'm planning on sleeping with him. <laughs> oh, and I tried cocaine. It's...
5: <laughs>
6: it's the coolest thing on earth. I think I'm addicted. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah Antonio and I got into our first big fight last night. What a temper. We made up though. I like the way he makes me feel. I'm the woman and should be kept in my place. (laughs) (laughs) Of course he is a Cuban. Well, I gotta go change my tampon. At least I'm not pregnant yet. What's <laughs> <laughs> okay. up, yo? Literally, in the diary. What's up, yo? I have done flake five times today. For those of you might not know, flake is a, uh, you know, pseudonym for, uh, Cocaine, in case you're not cool. Okay. I have done Flake five times today. I loved all of them. I'm not doing any more, for now at least. I like it too much. The high is worth the low. I'm also trying to stop smoking pot. I'm getting really burnt. Instead, I'm smoking cigarettes and shoplifting. (laughs) I love it. I get such a head rush. Today, I stole three pairs of underwear, one bra, and two shirts. It was too easy. we're nearing the end oh Oh my god it has to stop it all has to stop (laughs) I'm going to change my life around I snorted two huge bumps and then I came down hard real hard (laughs) the high isn't worth the low anymore (laughs) I have to stop hanging out with these people I'm going to f*** up my life I'm scared. Really scared. Okay, this is a month later. Hi, I'm still alive and not pregnant yet. (laughs) I broke up with Antonio and I'm going to N.A. I've been off cocaine and pot since October 2nd. I'm doing really good. I'm still having fun without totally going crazy. I think I'm going to sleep with Jason. I really want to because he's so hot, and he thinks I'm hot. So many people do. (laughs) I'm so popular and scandalous. I'm leaving out so many details that I hope I don't forget, but my hand would hurt if I wrote them all down. It's time for a new diary, but this one will always be most memorable. Later, dude. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Sasha Rothschild is still not pregnant She graduated from high school drug-free and with honors She's now married, a writer living in Los Angeles She was recorded at a show called Mortified Thanks to David Nadelberg who runs the show More info at www.getmortified.com program was produced today by Jane Feltis and myself with Alex Bloomberg, Diane Cook, Wendy Dorse, Sarah Koenig, and Lisa Pollock, Our senior producers, Julie Snyder. Elizabeth Meister runs our website. Production help from Todd Bachman and Will Reichel. Special thanks today to Amy Bender and Mayfair Recordings. Our website, www.thisamericanlife.org, where you can listen to our shows for absolutely free or buy CDs of them. Or you know you can download audio of our program at audible.com slash Life. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Funding for This American Life is provided by Volkswagen of America and their SUV, the Toreg, now featuring ABS, EDL, ESP, and a bunch of other acronyms that help provide comfort and control. Go acronyms. Learn more about Volkswagen's SUV, the Toreg, ASAP, at vw.com. WBEZ Management Oversight for our program by Mr. Tori Malatia, who can be heard at bars all over Chicago, walking up to young people and saying, I have a recording studio up the street. I would love to have you by sometime, you know, if you really want to get these recordings down, you know what I mean, in a, in a quality way. Hey, worked on me. Back next week with more quality recordings of This American Life.